Hi everyone, I'm Kyle Bechet, and this is the AAF Exchange, a podcast from the American Action Forum, where experts provide clear, data-driven insights into today's economic and domestic policy issues. Welcome, and thank you for tuning in. On this episode of the AAF Exchange, we will discuss the ongoing debate over the omnibus spending proposals for 2021 with AAF's Director of Fiscal Policy, Gordon Gray. Gordon, thanks for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. How have you been holding up throughout this pandemic? Oh, you know, hanging in there. Happy to report, though, that Congress and the election has kept us busy and on our toes. So, you know, at least we've got that going for us. Yeah, taking it one day at a time. That's right. All right, so let's jump right into things. A few must-do items to tackle before January when the new Congress takes over and the new president is inaugurated. The biggest of these is keeping the government funded and open. So let's start with that. Both Speaker Pelosi and Leader McConnell have said they want to get a deal on an omnibus spending package and avoid doing it a short-term continuing resolution. But many are skeptical. Where do you stand? What are the obstacles to that deal? So certainly from the leadership, you've definitely gotten some hopes of getting to agreement on an omnibus appropriations bill. Uh, Certainly, Leader McConnell has said that by the end of the week, we hope to see progress. So there's some expressions of goodwill and optimism. So far, there hasn't been a a lot of, yes, we've reached agreement on the divides on health spending, or we've reached agreements on our disagreements on border wall funding. So the things that have prevented agreement throughout, you know, over the years, frankly, still persist. So unless and until those divides are bridged, then I remain very skeptical of Congress's ability to enact uh, at least a full omnibus appropriations bill. They may, you know, get some here and there, but if I'm laying down a bet, I'm betting against their ability to get all 12 appropriations bills done. Uh, It's also, by the way, kind of a cop out and a safe bet because they almost never get all 12 (laughs) appropriations bills done, least of all during, uh, I think what we could could describe this as a challenging or adverse political environment. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Speaking speaking of that, uh, 2020 has been an unusual uh, year in many ways, but it seems This end-of-the-year budget showdown does happen pretty regularly, so this is an episode put into every season, if you will. So new writer. <laughs> before we get too deep into this year's uh, budget debate, um, would you walk us through you know, how this budget process, the annual budget process, is supposed to work? Sure. There's a neat little schedule embedded in federal law, Section 300 of the Congressional Budget Act even, has a schedule, a nice little orderly series of events that are supposed to arrive at a fully funded federal government. It sets forth in, uh, you know, at the beginning of the process, the president lays out his budget. Congress then carefully analyzes that budget and weighs it against their own priorities. Then they get the congressional budget baseline from the congressional budget office. And then they are supposed to debate and enact a budget resolution that sets the spending levels and tax levels between the two houses of Congress, and then they write their appropriations bills thereafter. So it's a nice orderly sequence of events that never happens. Um, Part of that is, even though this schedule is set forth in in law, so when, for example, the White House doesn't release their budget on time, they're in violation of federal law. But as any good lawyer will tell you, uh, unless there's a penalty for that, it really doesn't mean anything. There is no such thing as budget jail, probably for the best, because if there were, every lawmaker would be in it. (laughs) And that nice little orderly process rarely, if ever, happens. I I think there's been a handful of times since the modern budget process was set forth in in the act of 1974. I think there's been a couple times when they've actually sort of done it all the way through. But substantially, 
most of the uh, 40 plus years that this has been how Congress is supposed to arrive at budget uh, numbers, it, it doesn't work that way. So let's walk through some of that, you know, get, let's and get back to the current uh, negotiations. Where does President Trump come into these negotiations? I mean, we've seen him get involved in the past and the outcomes that they produce. But what about the current ones? That is the open question. The president himself has not articulated his views on uh, FY 2021 funding levels. The Office of Management and Budget uh, has not. We, we, we know that they don't agree with the appropriations bills that were released by you know the House Democratic majority earlier in the year. Uh, the Senate didn't release their appropriations bills till um, just this month. So there really hasn't been a lot of attempts to bridge the gap between Republicans and Democrats in general, and certainly not from the White House to engage. And at this point, it's not obvious just what the president's priorities or interests are in this space. It's an open question in Congress. <laughs> themselves has, has essentially said, um, we don't know. We're going to pretend like it's fine. We're going to see what we can do. And then it'll be his problem. Yeah, that seems to be the plan. It seems like through all this, there's a lot of open questions. <laughs> yeah. uh, getting to some more open questions. What about President-elect Biden? Um, we've heard reports that he wants to get a funding bill done for 2021 and get it off of his plate before he comes into office so he can deal with his own agenda. How much influence does he have in this process? President like Biden has as, as much influence, I think, as he wants to wield, understanding that to the extent you wield that influence, you're expending political capital. So the, the way these are going to shake out is uh, we still have the Budget Control Act spending limits in place for these spending bills. So it's not like if you were an incoming president and you had a grand, ambitious, domestic discretionary spending agenda, it's not like that's really on the table here. So you kind of have set spending limits because of the Budget Control Act, and Congress exerts a tremendous amount of uh, discretion in where uh, these funds are, are apportioned. And frankly, the incoming administration, given all those constraints, probably just wants it off their table. This is just sort of the business of governing, fund the agencies. The Budget Act already set up kind of a regime for the overall levels of funding. So that kind of locks in a lot of the sort of macro level considerations there. So if you're a new administration, you say, fine, fund it. You know, clearly they have a certainly a domestic policy agenda and there's big money attached to it, but it's not envisioned as being enacted as part of the regular appropriations process. It's just not how Congress does major domestic policy initiatives anymore. Another what if question, what, what if this does get kicked to next year? How might the change in Congress impact the negotiations? One of the key sticking points has been funding the border wall and the machinations by which the executive branch has moved around funds, congressionally appropriated funds, to fund that wall. I think taking that off the table would ease negotiations going forward. Then again, you won't have the Budget Control Act in place. That regime, nobody likes it. It certainly limits all of Congress's appetite for domestic uh, discretionary spending and defense spending. This kind of give everybody a parameter that for the most part, people just accept. Mm -hmm. And since you kind of, if you kind of put people in that box, then you at least narrow the scope of disagreement. <laughs> um, so you say, okay, we've limited the things you can fight about. And presumably that makes agreement a little bit more achievable. Now, of course, they've managed to fight about some of these things sufficiently that we have seen the longest government shutdown in history during one of these funding spats in the past. So there remains risk that they won't even get next year. I think that's very unlikely 
I don't think lawmakers necessarily want to have to deal with this again. You know, maybe Senate Democrats think there's a chance they'll flip Georgia, but it's a, you know, that's a risk. And presumably that they have higher ambitions than just locking in FY 2021 (laughs) discretionary spending if they flip the Senate. Um, I think a lot of people just want to fund the agencies and move on. Mm -hmm. So you don't think the outcomes of those Georgia Senate races should have that much of an impact or is it an open question? Oh, no. I mean, it to be sure, if Democrats control both chambers, that will absolutely exert more uh, control over the process. But unless and until they get rid of the legislative filibuster, certainly in the Senate, minority does retain considerable influence over the process. So the relative leverage and relative sort of bargaining power may shift, but what fundamental differences may persist into January? Again, if the wall funding issue is taken out of the equation, um, that might grease the skids a little bit. Gotcha. What about, you know, this 2020 has obviously been defined by the ongoing pandemic. So how does the COVID-19, you know, spending package fit into these negotiations? Uh, would Congress consider adding the coronavirus aid package to the spending bills? Or do you think the leadership just wants to keep these two things separate, get a deal on one or maybe both? Well, there's just clearly two very, very different uh, approaches to COVID relief legislation right now. You, you've seen the positions of Senate Republicans and House Democrats essentially solidify. Speaker Pelosi hasn't moved off of a you know $3 trillion HEROES Act. I am one who, who believes that the risks of the economy are such that I think it would be imprudent not to provide additional fiscal support. That said, the nature of that fiscal support in November, December probably needs to look different than what you would consider in, say, August, right? I mean, in August, keep in mind, we were considering whether or not to extend you know, $600 a month UI. Now you can understand that that may have made a public policy rationale in April when we were literally paying people to stay home to contain the virus. That doesn't seem to set against the backdrop of basically nationwide lockdowns. I I don't view that as likely. And so the policy response needs to change. It doesn't seem like we will not be pursuing a national policy of a national lockdown, paying people to stay home. We are moving towards essentially trying to coexist with the virus until the the vaccine takes hold and let people try, um, earn a living and get by while while the pandemic is still with us. And so the nature of some of these policies will need to change. The nature of a PPP proposal would need to be refined. And so even if Heroes was the best policy you could think of, which it wasn't clearly. For example, it included a salt cap uh, elimination. If someone can explain to me why um, wealthy New Yorkers need a tax cut to mitigate COVID-19, I don't know. But let's assume for a minute that that was good, a, a good idea in August. That's not the policy you would want in December or November because the landscape has changed. Mm-hmm. The labor market has changed. So you need to adapt, I think, to this to the situation you have. Uh, so the House Democrats haven't moved off of essentially their summer idea. It is no longer summer. Senate Republicans, much more modest relief package envisioned. I have seen some willingness for them to, to consider tacking on some uh, some of these, you know, public health, school funding, testing, things like that onto a omnibus or any kind of discretionary funding vehicle. Whether or not House Democrats would be willing to go along, it seems to me that if you think fiscal relief is warranted, you reach an agreement on what you can do. And if you're a Democrat and you, (laughs) by most lights, won the White House, say, all right, we're going to come back and we're going to argue for more. Um, Was certainly part of their messaging over the election, but that has not so far been the position of House Democrats. Gotcha. So it's still a long way to go before we we see any sort of agreement on on this. 
it seems to be the con- consensus view is there's a not a lot of of interest and appetite. Fair enough. All right, so let's look forward, look look ahead to fiscal year 2022 uh, budget negotiations. What do you foresee as the best and worst scenarios in in that debate? So I think under the best case, I'd like to think, for example, in the outlook uh, where we have a divided government, best case is just an orderly budget process. It is highly unlikely, however, that a divided government will produce a budget resolution with agreed upon spending levels. That's just not the way Congress is uh, budgeted in the modern era, particularly with divided government. So probably not a textbook uh, orderly budget process, but at least productive negotiations where you get to spending levels that, one, sustain and, and resource the national defense apparatus, domestic discretionary priorities, and you do it in a way that is predictable and orderly and avoids uh, any more government shutdowns and hopefully any more um, kind of funny business between moving money around in a dubious nature. I think we've, we've all seen something of executive overreach over the last several administrations, and I'd like to think we could see the disposition of taxpayer funds be, be handled in, in a little bit more orderly process. You know, the downside, of course, is twofold. One is, I think, you know, if Democrats take over the Senate, you know, I think a lot of us are concerned about progressive overreach, getting rid of the legislative filibuster. You know, if Democrats take over Congress and use budget reconciliation to achieve their campaign goals, you know, what's good for the goose, I guess, is good for the gander, how Republicans achieve the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act. Whether or not that was strategically wise is an open question, but you can expect that Democrats would do the same. You'd see high in higher spending. That's what they said they would do. It's not my ideal policy scenario, but it, it is a predictable one. I think more, more concerning would be, I think, getting rid of the legislative filibuster and substantial deviations from, from norms uh, or continuation of substantial deviation from norms uh, in governing. That, that would, would, would worry me most. One of the things that Congress may like is that they're not going to be dealing with the Budget Control Act. And so, you know, when Congress has a bigger allowance, at least to give to themselves, it tends to make them happier. So maybe with a little bit more room in the the discretionary budget, which is increasingly a smaller share of the federal budget, maybe that'll help bicameral um, relations. So we'll see. But there's definitely some risks. So it sounds like no matter what, you're going to have your hands full watching all these issues. That's right. Um, Tune in next time. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> exactly. All right. So quickly, before I let you go, I want to talk about some of those longer term budget outlook issues. You mentioned offhand there that discretionary spending is getting to be a smaller portion of the federal budget. Um, so with the exception of both sides pointing fingers, I haven't heard much of plans to deal with the deficit and get the debt under control. Uh, do any of the current discussions address those concerns? Are there any chance that we're going to hear something in this in the next few years? I'm skeptical of a great deal of attention being paid to the debt and deficit. The current administration made a big show of saying that they weren't going to touch the major entitlements. We've seen polling that increasingly shows, turns out Americans basically want to pay low taxes and be the beneficiaries of high spending. The reason why (laughs) they've been convinced that that's sustainable is because successive administrations of Congress or and Congress have told them that it is. We need to spend way more money than they're willing to ask Americans to, to pay back in taxes. And so long as you tell the American people that this can go on, it's a pretty good deal for the taxpayer unless and until you have to look forward at the bill coming due. And the debt challenge used to always be characterized as a long-term problem. 
Well, if something is always a long-term problem, it eventually arrives in the medium term and then the near term. The COVID pandemic has only accelerated that trend. We have layered on trillions and trillions in new debt against an economy that is suffering. And so we've seen tax revenues fall and we've seen automatic stabilizer payments go up. And so we've basically uh, taken a budget outlook that was unsustainable with $12 trillion in 10-year baseline uh, projected deficits. And just last year, we've added uh, over $3 trillion set against an economy that a global economy that is struggling. So what used to be a long-term problem is now a much nearer term problem. Both political parties have largely talked themselves out of the necessity for dealing with it. They've all told essentially their constituencies and each other that, no, you do not have to eat your vegetables. You can just keep eating ice cream and it'll be fine. That's the scenario in which we found ourselves. Neither party particularly wants to deal with this because it's all bad choices. The solutions for the debt are bad. We have to tax you more than you're used to, and we'll have to provide less services than you want. That's a lousy deal. No one wants to. And if you're a politician, you certainly don't want to run on that message. <laughs> so I would expect to see more of the same over the next several years. Um, like I said, there's talk between Republicans and Democrats about agreeing, each one agreeing to the other's tax cut. Mm -hmm. uh, and not paying for it. That's how what bipartisanship often looks like these days is, okay, we'll agree to your spending increase. You agree to our tax cut. Uh, it needs to work in the opposite direction. I'm skeptical that it will. Yeah. So, I mean, you outlined the solutions to this. I think every blue ribbon commission has ever on this issue has oh, yeah. outlined the, issue, the answers to this. But what, what's it going to take for meaningful movement on these long-term issues? So I actually did a little work on this. The Scope and scale of the debt challenge now is way bigger than any single tax increase. We have to do so much deficit reduction persistent. Uh, depending on when we start and sort of where we want to end up, it takes a greater and lesser degree of uh, fiscal consolidation. So that combination of tax increases and spending cuts. If we wait longer and we want to end up with a lower debt, then you know the, the hill is much steeper. But even if we have fairly modest debt, you know, essentially, if we just want to stabilize the debt roughly where it is and we want to start uh, sooner, we're still going to need several on the order of three percentage points in GDP persistently in deficit reduction. And that's way bigger than any single year fiscal consolidation that we've ever seen. So the amount of fiscal consolidation that we need basically swamps anything that we've seen before. So it's gonna take a huge hurdle and politicians are gonna have to prepare the American people for this. They're going to have to tell them this is coming. The stuff we've been telling you before where we can keep spending at this level and taxing at this level, that can't go on. Politicians are going to have to agree to this set of facts. And so far, they haven't. Well, hopefully we can get there at some point. But Gordon, thanks for taking the time today to uh, talk to us. And hopefully we'll see each other in person soon. <laughs> Absolutely. Looking forward to it. Uh, thanks for having me on, Kyle. I hope you enjoyed this conversation. Tune back in for our next episode, where our experts will provide clear, data-driven insights into today's economic and domestic issues. I'd also encourage you to check out any of the links in our show notes and also follow us on social media to learn more about AAF. Don't forget to subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or Google Play.